0: Life Audio Hey everyone, this is Kelly Givens, one of the producers of How to Study the Bible. Today we are excited to share an episode preview from another one of our Life Audio shows, Faith Over Fear. In Faith Over Fear, author and speaker Jennifer Slattery helps us see different areas of life where fear has a foothold and how our identity as children of God can help us move from fear to faithful, bold living. If you like what you hear, please check out today's show notes or search Faith Over Fear on your favorite podcast app. And don't worry, Nicole will be back at her regularly scheduled time with a brand new episode of How to Study the Bible. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we tackle our most pervasive fears with truth, because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We would love to connect with you online. Just visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. I'm Jennifer Slattery, and I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Dan Allender and Kathy Lorzell, co-authors of Redeeming Heartache, a thought-provoking book that helps readers process past suffering through the lens of God's goodness. Dan Allender and Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, Jennifer, good to be with you. Thanks for having us.
1: Dan Allender has pioneered a unique and innovative approach to trauma and abuse therapy over the past 25 years, and central to his approach are the categories of faith, hope, and love, and their converse, betrayal, ambivalence, and powerlessness. Through engaging these categories and in learning to identify them in one's personal story, healing and transformation can occur by bridging the story of the gospel and the stories of trauma. So in 2011, the Allender Center was founded by Dr. Dan Allender and Rebecca Allender, alongside Kathy Lorzo, with the support of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, to cultivate healing and train leaders and mental health professionals to courageously engage other stories of harm. And he's written numerous books, including the one that we're going to be discussing today, Redeeming Heartache, with co-author Kathy. And Kathy Lorzell, she combines a business strategy background and a deep understanding of the cultural landscape to her roles in the Allender Center and the Seattle School. She has held previous roles in the House of Representatives on Capitol Hill, in process and change management at PWC and IBM, and in leadership development in the wilderness of Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy joined the Seattle School first as an MA in counseling psychology student in 2004, and she took on a staff role as a student council facilitator and upon graduating, joined the team full time. And like I said, they both wrote this book together on redeeming heartache.
3: Message and data rates may apply and available to U.S. addresses only.
4: Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation.
1: So in the book, you both, I I was really impressed with how you both validated trauma, all all types of trauma. Why do you feel like that was important?
2: Oh, Jennifer, in one sense, the word is such a um, byword today, and I'm appreciative of that. Um, you know, we we live in a world that's east of Eden, and anyone who actually believes that we were meant for Eden has to say that no matter how good life is for you, the reality is we are not living in the world that we were meant to live in. And therefore, the reality of death, the reality of sin, the reality of betrayal whether we're talking about capital T trauma, where there is deep violation of human dignity and honor, or what could be viewed as the more garden variety traumas of living in a fallen world, we are all affected in our body, in our heart, mind, in our relationships by that heartbreaking reality. And I think, if I can just put it this bluntly, we as the believing community have not acknowledged deeply enough how far we are from what we were meant to experience each and every day. And in that, no matter how normal your life seems, the reality is there are effects that we have to take into account to actually be able to mature.
1: Absolutely, and Kathy, when you discussed a story with your son, and you used it as an example of unpacking your story, like writing down, ordering, and unpacking our stories of harm, would you expand on that a bit?
0: Yeah. So part of of the the research that's coming out now that um, is is really kind of confirming the work that Dan's been doing for a long time, and that we've been doing for the last ten years, at the Allender Center is that we all um, react to trauma in pretty much the same way, regardless if it's big T trauma, like Dan said, or little T trauma. Our bodies, our minds, our souls, we do three things. We fragment the story. We kind of break it all apart and put it in different parts of our body and our minds to save us from the reality of what's happening. We dissociate. We numb. We need to push it away because it's too much and it overwhelms us. And then we isolate in order to keep ourselves protected. And so what we did in the book was kind of talk about what does it mean to, since we're all going to experience trauma, um, there are two things that can happen. One is that when we experience trauma, it can turn into a traumatic event that's processed, that's cared for. It's still hurtful and, and hard, but it doesn't embed itself into our bodies, into our ways of being. We can actually heal from trauma if it's handled well, well enough, right? Or if it's not, it becomes an embedded trauma. And then we then re, we, we shift our life around. We shift our styles of relating around to keep us protected because we don't want to experience that pain again um, in the same way that we did the first time we experienced it. And so in the book, I tell two stories. One is my son, Liam, where he kind of goes through a trauma, but we handle it. And um, we help him um, retell the story. So, in that sense, handle the fragmentation, because we know when a story is is fragmented, our bodies can't actually release it. It stays. So we help him. Put together the story and tell it. We help him stay present and not dissociate, which helps him be able to relieve himself from the trauma, um, and then help him not to isolate, to stay connected, and and then we tell a story about another person that you know a, a made up person named Sally to say you know what's the impact if trauma isn't handled well at the origin of it? What's then the implication later? But then how does healing happen down the road? Which is also possible, right? And so that's it's. It's kind of showing the, the both of the options and and being able to lay out the importance of of care and connection in the midst of trauma.
1: Well, wow, that's awesome. So, Dan, I love this quote. You said, "Unresolved pain shapes our deepest fears and passions, and our fears and passions most deeply shape who we are and what we will become." So, how how do our unresolved pain? How does that really impact our fear and our anxiety
2: levels? Well, it's, it's such a good question because. More often than not, as Kathy put so well, we we come to normalize our suffering, and then this is to me heartbreaking. We we slap on our escape of suffering that actually we're trusting God now. Uh, uh, My wife is involved in a Bible study where one of the persons lost their husband, and within a week. When asked, how are you doing? She said, well, I'm trusting God, which means, at least in her terms, I'm not feeling the pain of this loss. So when we, when we think that trusting God is escaping what the Psalms call us to. And the psalms are worship. The psalms are more than mere poetry. They are what was used in the worship in the temple of God, which includes psalms that take God on. Psalm 13, Psalm 44, Psalm 88, where you hear the people of God saying, you sold us down the river and didn't make a penny off of our sale. We often think that's a lack of trust. But... When we begin to name what's really roiling inside of us, our confusion, our heartache, our deep questions about God's faithfulness and goodness, he actually calls that worship rather than rebellion, as long as we're engaging him, so to speak, face to face. So when we begin to address heartache and trauma, as Kathy put, if you cut it off, it stays in your body and shapes how you engage every person in your life, how you're going to engage your spouse, how you are engage your friends, but ultimately how you're going to engage God. So where we become less human, we actually become less godly. When we become less engaged with what's really happening with us internally and externally, we're actually participating in a form of self-deceit. And that is not the truth of God. So what we're inviting people to is, can we open the door to trauma in a way that actually provokes the deep questions of, look, we all feel to some degree like an orphan who's been abandoned. We, we feel to some degree like a stranger who doesn't fit any longer. And we feel in some ways like a widow or a widower who has lost something of the core of love. And those archetypes, uh, those key archetypes found particularly in the Hebrew Bible, are central to our understanding the nature of living east of Eden, what it means to have to engage the issues of trauma.
1: No, when you talk about kind of putting on this my translation, like a facade, I'm going to trust God. And so I don't have to, to hurt. I was actually reminded of your story, Kathy, when you went with the family, the Episcopalian family, and there were rules that you didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Do you think that sometimes, especially in the evangelical world, that that kind of can hinder
0: our, our healing and our interaction with God? I think so. I mean, I I think it's such a natural um, thing for us to want to fit in, right? And, and we're searching all the time for what are the rules? What, how do I, how, how do I get accepted, but also how am I loved? Um, What do I need to do to stay in the family, whether that's, you know, your actual family or whatever you're engaged with. And, and I think we, we long for belonging, right? And, and so much of what happens in the fallen world is that sense of I'm other, like, I don't belong, and we experience shame, we experience humiliation, we experience mockery, or we just have a sense of, how come I didn't know? Like, how, how come everyone else knows around me and, and I don't? And, and those are painful things, even in their most innocent uh, experiences of it. Because as a child, our sense, you know, when we're born and, and when we're filled with delight and just engaging the world with innocence, the idea is that we're loved, Right? Like we're loved and we're delighted. And I mean, how many kids do you see who come in and are like, I made up this play and it's wonderful and everyone should come. And also you have to pay $5 and here are your tickets and you're going to sit and you're going to watch me for 30 minutes, you know, and it's, and it's painful and beautiful and delightful, but they have no sense of shame. Right. But we learn shame through reading the faces around us. We learn that there's something wrong, that that people aren't actually taking us in in the way that we want to be taken in. And even for a small child, children can read that on the faces of their families, of their parents, of their teachers, and they don't want to experience that. Right. And so they back away and then they think, oh, you know, as soon as they read on a parent's face, they're not enjoying this. And actually or they actually have cruelty where a parent is mocking or someone's humiliating them. They will shut that part of their natural sense of delight, natural sense of play, natural sense of rest. And then they'll adjust it. And I think that happens all the time in small ways or in big ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But that really impacts your spirit. And the spirit of delight and honor and goodness and joy is part of the fruits of the spirit that I think God wants us to enjoy. But we're very sensitive to to that sort of betrayal, and and then we shift as soon as we experience it once, not only twice, three times, four times. And now you're talking about a style of relating that's changing over time.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe to help our listeners understand, can you in the book, Dan, you you break down trauma in in a very explainable way. Would you share with our listeners how you would define trauma?
2: Well, the, the first issue is a threat to your life. And indeed, that can be a literal threat to your physical life. But that threat to life can be anything like the loss of a job, the breakup of a marriage, a child who's breaking your heart. So wherever there is a sense that what you know as the norm of goodness begins to break down. That's the beginning to any sense of trauma. But add this second word that is so crucial, and that is a sense of powerlessness. Like You cannot change what's happening. If you're in a trauma that you really can alter by, well, in a moderately short period of time, it, it will not have the same effect. But when you combine those two words threat and some degree of powerlessness then we add a third word and that's the idea of some kind of moral injury and that that's a word that comes from studies of post traumatic stress disorder where you feel to some degree you're at fault like you're at fault you can't change the trajectory of how your son is going and The trauma of how he's living combined with a sense of powerlessness and then your own self-blame. Those three factors lead to the very thing that Kathy was putting words to, fragmentation, literally in the middle of trauma. The left hemisphere, particularly what's called Broca's area, and the left frontal lobe begins to shut down. And that's the part of our brain that holds language, memory, holds the ability to think sequentially. And so when we're in trauma, again, small or large T, we begin to fragment. And in that fragmentation, especially if we are powerless, we feel overwhelmed. And that is something that we begin to shut down. So again, back to these three key words, fragmentation, numbing, and that sense of I'm responsible, I'm at fault becomes the very factor for why we pull away, why we isolate, because it's a sense of shame. I'm wrong. I'm not good. I didn't do well as a friend or a spouse or as a parent. And somehow with that sense of shame, we want to go get smaller, become invisible, or just isolate ourselves from others. And again, to underscore, this is such evil's plan. Evil is so committed to us, in one sense, being fragmented because it shatters faith. Evil is so committed to us losing hope. Uh, and and therefore, in one sense, becoming so numb internally, but ultimately, evil's wanting us to isolate so we don't have the benefit of community, the benefit of relationship. Relationship is one of the key factors for being able. To engage again, capital T or small T trauma, but with that sense of shame, oh my goodness, it's so easy to want to withdraw, to stay in your own isolated world. And again, in this COVID era, many of us have not done, shall we say, a lot of time in the context of our churches or friendship circles or, or, or the world of even going into in, into work. And so we're already in a pandemic, trauma, fragment, numb, isolation. But when we then add something of our own personal story to the corporate global story, my goodness, no wonder this is indeed an era of trauma.
1: I imagine for some people, some part of that will hit on something, a deeper wound that they've already experienced.
2: But we had the privilege, a number of us, to go to Houston after Hurricane Harvey. And we worked in a very large megachurch with probably up to 50 staff members. And we we kept, uh, you know, very anecdotal records. But what we discovered was only four people out of 50 actually talked about the trauma that came as a result of their homes being flooded, et cetera, et cetera. What, what that trauma brought up is exactly what you're putting words to, Jennifer. And that is the traumas that related to their family of origin, to struggles in their marriage, to issues with their children. And in one sense, trauma not only begets trauma, but trauma exposes unaddressed trauma. And that just feels overwhelming because if you're in the middle You're in the middle right now of a real significant heartache with your spouse. The idea that it's going to bring to the surface matters of your past sexual abuse, matters of significant humiliation when you were 14, 15 years of age. You can see why the idea of let me just numb, let me just escape, let me just trust God, I'll just get over this. And in that sense, it seems cruel, but it's such a sweet, hard invitation from God to, you don't have to resolve everything from age 14, but will you at least turn your eyes and say, there's more here, there's more to engage. And we talk about this key phrase, and that is, can you come to your trauma, current and past, with kindness. Mm. When Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We cannot approach the heartbreak or our own failures, which have added to our trauma. That's what I mean by trauma begets trauma. We can't approach it with a kind of ruthless commitment to resolve that we've got to be willing to, in some sense, come with honor a kind of speed that will feel very slow. And yet, it is kindness that begins to alter something of the fabric of what the past has brought into the present.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about the three core wounds in the book, we, we bring up the three archetypes like Dan was talking about around orphan, stranger and widow. And I think it's helpful for us to start to understand our present, like, you know, so many people now are really undone by the amount of trauma that's kind of wave after wave after wave, and it feels like nothing is ever ending. And every time we think we're kind of coming out of it, something else emerges and our our ways of handling that are no longer working. And I think that's why we're seeing these increased numbers of depression, anxiety, suicide, alcoholism, addiction, all of these things are are coming up because we're really flooded. And, And as Dan said, what that brings you back to is all of the past places that your trauma has not been healed attended to, you know, even if it's small things, that our current way of of handling those is no longer working or available to us in the same way that it was. And so we're in crisis for many people. You know, Dan and I have been traveling all over the country for the last, you know, 6 to 9 months, well, me more than Dan, but <laughs> Dan <laughs> yeah, still kind of been cloistered in uh, in Seattle but as I've been going out on the road no like people are really struggling really struggling especially in churches because the churches th- their worlds have been flipped upside down and their structures that they held on to for so long as being kind of the normative structures that they c- they could rest in are not working and and in some ways they shouldn't because they were maladaptive right but but now they're at this place where they're needing handholds to understand what is going on, what is coming up for me, because the the way that they're handling their current crisis is directly related to how they experienced harm in their origin stories. And so the beauty of the orphan, stranger, and widow is it gives you language and categories for what happens. So let's talk about the orphan just for a second, right? The orphan's core wound is that at some point in their life, they realized no one's coming and that whatever they need from other people is either not reliable or sets them up for more harm and humiliation. And so they have then shifted into self-reliance. I can only need when I, what I can actually give myself. I don't want to trust other people. So I'm going to be hypervigilant. I'm going to have a lot of control. Well, if that's what you're learning as a child, that's adaptive behavior, right? That, that's because you learned that what you really needed wasn't available to you. So thank God you shifted and survived. But now as an adult, now you're trying to manage being married, having kids, being in community, and your, your way of interacting with the world is... I can't need you. I'm not going to need you. And I'm going to have an intense amount of control over my life. Well, anyone who's trying to come in and connect with you, is going to have a hard time, but it's because you're actually scared. It's because you've actually experienced humiliation and harm. And until you go back to where those origin stories happened, you can't fix the present. So you can't just be in marriage counseling and be like, okay, I'm going to try to receive your care now. That's not going to work for someone with an orphan wound. They need to go back and understand. Gosh. This This is because I had to only need what I could give myself. And now I actually have more needs and I have a husband who's actually able to some degree to engage with me, but his care feels dangerous. His care, I feel threatened by it and I don't want him to come any closer. And yet I'm longing because I'm exhausted and I don't want to have to care for myself anymore. But do you see the war for that orphan heart? And again, so much of our world is like, well, just fix it, right? Pray more, read more scripture go to more Bible studies, do this marriage workshop. But if they're not going back, then it's just putting a Band-Aid on the wound and it's not going to work.
3: Hey guys, we're here because the Bible has changed so many lives. So just take a second and think about if you didn't have access to a Bible or you weren't even allowed to have one. This is a reality that many around the world are facing, which is why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language, and that's where you come in. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my new book, Not What I Signed Up For. Simply text STUDY to 71326 to help today. That's S-T-U-D-Y or visit give.crew.org slash study. Again, that's give.cru.org slash study. Message and data rates may apply and available to U.S. addresses only.
1: Wow. Well, you both talk a lot about living in a fallen world and kind of coming to terms with that. I found that particularly freeing, I guess. And I would love, what do you mean when you discuss false Edens? What do you mean by that?
2: Well, it's we love good parties. We love good vacations. There are so many good things in this world that really are a taste of what it is we were meant to enjoy in Eden. But false Edens are where you take something really good and you make it your life. It's really another word for the word idolatry. You have come to actually believe your middle-class life you deserve. And if it's threatened you are furious. I mean, in so many ways, what brings tears, what brings anger, often exposes what we're demanding satisfy something of our heart. And so, again, uh, when the psalmist says, my only good on this earth is you, he's not saying that he's eschewing a a good meal uh, or a good conversation. Ultimately, what's being said is, what really is the core of what you worship? And I think most of us, uh, I'll speak for myself, I'm an idolater. I love Jesus, but I also love my life, defined as the comforts that come with this particular middle-class way of being. So, when that gets threatened, I then begin to question the goodness of God because my family idols are not saving me. So, Eden becomes, false Edens, a way to satisfy what only truly we can find in, in, in our ongoing maturing relationship with Jesus. And in that sense, we have to have the humility to be able to say, as the man whose son was by a demon cast into a fire, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm a believer. I'm also an unbeliever but the key word here is, oh, I need help. And what we want to offer in the book is indeed what we've had to struggle with, with regard to our own stories, where we have felt orphaned or estranged, that sense of not really feeling like you fit, or where again, love has been lost to death in some form. So can we step into the reality of where there's loss, but can we also step into the reality of how we've tried to assuage or resolve or moderate the loss so that we don't feel it as deeply? And again, if I have a bad headache, I'm going to take an aspirin. But if I begin to depend upon that aspirin in a way in which I'm not actually being willing to do the hard work of asking, why am I under so much tension? Then even the aspirin becomes a false Eden.
1: Wow. Yeah. Kathy, you talk about how we store like our trauma in our bodies and, and how our bodies can't differentiate between big and small trauma. So what would that look like for somebody if they're kind of experiencing that?
0: You know, I think, again, as Dan said, when our left and our right brain, if our left brain is the one who creates meaning and sequential understanding of what happened, our right brain is the one that holds onto the body memory of what happened to us. And so often people who have experienced trauma have a great deal of anxiety, dysregulation in their bodies. They have gut issues because we know that that's directly connected. You have, you know, I don't know if you, if you're like me, but you've woken up at three in the morning with like your heart racing. And all of a sudden you have this rush of cortisol coming through, you know, when, when we have trauma stored up in our bodies that are not connected to, to the why or what happened or, or meaning making parts, it just gets left for our bodies to deal with in, in almost like a, a a segmented way. Right. And, and so we end up having oh gosh, like so many people have gut issues, right? You know, where all of a sudden you having, you have tons of anxiety stored up in your body from so much cortisol rushing through, or you have adrenal fatigue, you know, which is another thing that we're learning in the scientific community that happens because your adrenaline is rushing all the time, right? But basically what happens is that it's very difficult for us to rest. It's very difficult for us to play because play, you have, your body has to be kind of at a more restful state in order to find delight. It's very difficult for us to kind of manage day-to-day things because the body anxiety overtakes our capacity to kind of mentally move through a situation. So it manifests in lots of different ways, but more than anything, it just means that our bodies can't regulate as they're meant to. And and a regulated, a calm body is what we need and what um, the people we're connected to need from us in order to be safe. And so if you have a dysregulated body, your children are going to be on edge with you because they're picking up what's going on on in your body your spouse it's going to be harder for you to have like give and receive pleasure there's, it's just, it's going to impact lots of ways. I mean, if you look at how you eat. So when I was at my, when my heights of, of trauma and dysregulation, um, when I was going through postpartum depression, I would like eat food so fast because there was this sense of, I don't know when I'm going to get to eat again. I can't sit and enjoy this. I can't allow my body to rest. And so I would just like inhale standing up, you know, with a baby and then, and then like not even know that I'd eaten anything. And there was no Joy, there was no rest, you know. So it impacts us on lots of different ways, but more than anything, it steals joy, it steals rest and it steals delight. And and frankly, our bodies are then just left exhausted, not understanding what's happening to them because we're not actually offering language back in again.
2: Well, and part of part of that, Jennifer, is that as Kathy has used the phrase, when you have stressed biochemicals like cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, the catecholamines rushing through your body. And they're not really being released. It, it comes from what we know as homeostasis, that is a sense of actually shalom, a peace to what's called allostasis, which is we've ramped up to a new level of normal, but that new normal is actually creating inflammation in our body. And so whenever you've got the word itis after something, colitis, arthritis, we're actually talking about the primary means of illness comes from your body's inflammation coming from stress biochemicals. So we've been able, and we, not we, Kathy and I, but the the, the medical community has been able to see a very strong relationship between the non-metabolized stress biochemicals, cancer, heart disease, arthritis, uh, al- al- almost all. All the core, shall we say, bases by which people die of illness, actually is a response to stress, i.e., a stress-related trauma that hasn't been engaged. So we're we're, we're killing ourselves and we're dying of trauma, and we maybe exercise a little bit more, maybe eat some more vegetables. That's the part of this whole process of going, can we invite you to where all of that heartbreaking energy came in your own four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old being, and can we tend to those stories? Again, with wisdom and kindness, can we engage the fact that that eight-year-old still exists in you and is operating out of a perspective that you would have not found fault for when you were eight, but it's actually leading you to death as a 28, 38, 48-year-old. This is really where the question of, do we trust God, that he really wants to heal? And that healing is possible, maybe never complete, at least in this lifetime, and yet profound and able to open up new realms of, of just goodness and freedom.
1: You both talk about wrestling with God. So why is that important?
2: Well, I keep going back to the Psalms. Uh, it, it's it's important because it's biblical. It's important because Jacob who basically, you know, the word means who's deceived and deceiving, becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God. So the very name of the people of God, Israel, in Hebrew means the ones who wrestle with God. So there is something about that notion of, will you engage me? Will you bring both your heartache, your anger, your desire, and in some sense, your faithlessness to me, because somehow in this process of engagement, I mean, we all know that relationship changes our lives. A really, I mean, a single presence of a good person in an elementary school child's life can change the power of the bullying and the despair that's there. Well, if we know that at a human level, why wouldn't we actually believe that the ultimate relationship with God actually could change us if we were true to who we are uh, in the midst of that. And the notion that we need to approach God with a certain pretense of, oh, you're all good. We trust you. It's always good to trust you. Well, again, I keep coming back to, well, how is it that the Bible is shaping your way of engaging with God, particularly as you read the Psalms, but not only the Psalms.
0: Yeah. I mean, scripture is madness. It's the stories are, I mean, if you actually look at it, not from a sense of like, oh, you know, this is the word of God and it's beautiful. It's like all that's true. But have you really read the stories? Like they're and, and God isn't afraid of telling the whole story. Like if God just wanted us to just trust and like he would tell a much easier story to look at, he wouldn't include, you know, the rapes and the adultery and the murder and the vengefulness and the genocide. And God knows our hearts. He knows what it means to be human because Jesus has been on this earth and, and Jesus wrestled with, with things that were coming at him and, and you know, and, and then continue to tell stories and stay settled in the midst of it. So I, I just think that God actually invites us to that. But then our denial to do so is actually, I think, joining with evil to keep us dead inside. Because if we're really honest, this is a very harsh and difficult world. And it, it doesn't turn out well for a lot of people. And yet God is still sovereign and good. We'll wrestle with that. Are like, are you alive? (laughs) Are are you paying attention? This is horrible and beautiful at the same time. Both are true, and both need to be looked at and understood. Or else, are we really getting to the heart of God? God is not afraid to tell the truth. He's not afraid of the truth of our stories, or His story, or Jesus's story.
2: And that simple phrase, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" The first verse of Psalm 22, but it also holds the trust of Jesus with regard to the goodness of his father, not my will, but yours be done. That's, shall we say, the depths of maturity is to cry out, but also to know the one to whom you are crying out is so good. But if we take the goodness and refuse to cry out, there's truly a loss of humanity. And therefore, ultimately a a, a loss of, of what it means to be like Jesus.
1: That's beautiful. Well, I really appreciate you both. Taking the time to talk to our listeners. I think you gave them a lot to kind of chew on, to think about, and I will put more information in the show notes. Thank you so much for having us. Well, thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to subscribe. Then you won't miss a single episode and make sure to rate us. That helps others to find it and it encourages our team as well. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set
4: free. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear. For more Faith Toolkit podcasts like this,
0: My name is Tamara Andres, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. I use my mic like a machete, so if you don't like to get your toes stepped on or pushed off cliffs to finally jump on in with Jesus, I may be too much for you. But if you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, Search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com today.